You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Would you turn in your Bible to James chapter 5? As we continue our study through this book, we're picking up our reading in verse 12. And something that you may notice, I'm going to read actually to the end of the chapter, the end of the book, to verse 20, because what we're really going to be entering into is kind of a little mini-series within the greater series. In fact, as I was looking at this passage this week, it just really struck me that um, what James is talking about in these verses are what I would call six essential characteristics that enable us to live victorious Christian lives. And there are a lot of us who are living Christian lives, but we would not define them as victorious maybe at the moment. That uh, maybe today or yesterday was a good day, but today or the day before or maybe impossibly tomorrow, you're going to find yourself struggling with issues. How do we live in a way that we're always prepared and living successfully the life that Christ has called us to live? Hopefully over the next few weeks we can begin to address that more particularly. But if you would stand with me as we begin by reading this passage, and as I said, over the next six weeks we'll be rereading this passage over and over again so that it'll get to the point you'll know it so well that you'll not even have to look at your Bibles because it'll be blanched into your memories. In verse 12 he begins, he says, above all my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or earth, by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Some versions actually have it, or you will become a hypocrite. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would look to us, that you would search our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be a monologue of me talking here, but Lord, there would be a conversation, a dialogue taking place between every one of us and you, that over my voice we would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit touching and and speaking to us and bringing us to that place of embracing your truth and allowing it to be the guide of our life. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you recall, James began this letter in the first chapter by writing about trials and testings and temptations. What he does in verses 13 through 15 is explain the avenues through which trials, testings, and temptations tend to collide or crash into our lives. 
many of us, most of us would agree, hopefully, that we never invite a trial. We never invite a temptation. We never invite some kind of testing in our life. It comes without invitation, without our permission. It just kind of crashes through the front door of our life and demands that it dominate the agenda of what's taking place at any particular moment. But what he says is these come in three different forms. The first, he says that they come in the form of troubles, or maybe more literally, actually, would be the word sufferings. Kakapatheo in the Greek literally means to suffer evils, to suffer hardships, to suffer troubles. And I simply summarize this by saying we have bad times in our life. None of us, if we live any length of time, can't look back and say, that was a bad time. Even though God was with us, even though God helped us through it, we would say, Lord, thank you for that experience. Please excuse me from any future similar experiences. I don't want to go through that ever again. It was a bad time. But secondly, he talks about sickness. And the word that's used here literally means to be weak or sick or impotent or diseased, literally to be without strength. So not only do we have bad times, but sometimes we have bad health. And as much as you and I may try to live a preventive way, we can't help but have it affect us at one moment or another. Because like any car that breaks down with wear and tear, so also our bodies break down. My wife tells me that sometimes my mind breaks down. But the simple fact is that health is an issue. Bad health oftentimes takes over and and changes, changes our lives in ways that we had never anticipated. And then lastly, he simply said there's sin. Not only suffering, not overing sickness, but sin. In fact, literally the term refers to a willful disobedience, or I would summarize it as being bad choices. These things affect our lives, bad times, bad health, and bad choices. So much so that they can completely change our perspectives on life and and who we are and even our view of God. It can cause us to see God in new and even more wonderful ways. It can also cause us to despair and begin to feel as if God is no longer part of our team. Well, the point is that James identifies in these verses that we're going to be looking at the next six weeks what I call the essentials of survival in the face of adversity. The essentials, six of them. One one of them that we're going to begin with today is truth. Secondly, we're going to talk about prayer and then worship and then about healing and what that all entails. We're talking about confession and the point of being a confessional Christian and lastly about restoring or restoration in the Christian life. But we want to begin this morning by looking at the issue of truth because it is the foundation upon which everything in the Christian life rests. What do we mean when we use the word truth? You see, we live in a world that is filled with modern-day Pontius Pilots who impiously ask, what is truth? As if there's no real satisfying answer to that question. But the very question itself implies that there is an answer, and reality demands that we find it. So that if you have the word truth in your vocabulary, you have to understand that it's there because you know there is such a thing, even though you may be in a temporary or permanent state of confusion like Pius, wondering what exactly is it. There was a time when people generally agreed about truth. They agreed that there was such a thing as an absolute 
universal, objective truth. What do I mean by absolute? Well, simply that it governs over everything. There is no thing that competes with it. There is a truth that is truth always in all circumstances, under all situations. And it's something that applies universally. That if you're sucking air, you're part of this absolute truth dimension. And so it is that this truth as well is objective. In other words, it's not something that is amorphous and has no form, but it's something that's pretty solid. It's something you can look at and we can agree with and say, this is a statement about truth that is true and it's always true. Now, every field of inquiry and investigation is based upon the belief and the assumption that this is a reality, that some things are true, that they are always true, and some things are false and they are always false. And we understand by simple application of logic, a thing can't be both false and true, or true and false at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive and contradictory terms. This is the entire basis, if you will, of all scientific inquiry. And we also know that when something is true, the evidence of it being true is that it agrees with reality. And if it agrees with reality, for something to be true, it has to work. And it has to work all the time. It's something that can be demonstrated and tested and repeated and proven. And if it doesn't prove to be workable, then it is not true. So that when we look at a world that we're living in, you go to the most smallest entity. We know the atomic particles that exist in the world. We know that they have negative and positive properties, that there's a polarity in there, that some things are negative and some things are positive, that the material and the moral universe similarly have this same kind of polarity, that there is on one hand, there is reality, and on the other hand, there is fantasy. On one hand, there is truth, and on the other, there is falsehood, and these truths are absolute, and these truths are universal. And you may be wondering, why does he keep on reiterating this? Because sometimes it's hard for people to hear. You see, because today there are many people that believe that truth is not absolute. They believe it's relative, that it's regional, (laughs) and that it's subjective. In other words, it's relative in the sense of it isn't always true all the time. That it's regional in the sense that different people have different versions of truth and therefore their truth is just as valid as my truth. And ultimately, it's subjective. Whatever I decide is the truth for me, that is my truth. Now, I know for certain that every one of you has heard this proliferated on every single media and avenue and conversation that exists in the world. This is becoming the prevailing way of looking at the world. But you see, people who believe this only believe it in terms of things that don't really matter, at least immediately. For example, when I get on an airplane and ask the pilot, is this plane safe to fly in? If he responds to me, as far as you know it is, um, I'm not going to be a happy guy. (laughs) because the airworthiness of this plane is not a matter of subjective or relative perspective. 
The fact that I look at it and saying it looks like it's a pretty safe plane to fly in does not prove that it's a safe plane to fly in. I'll never forget flying on a Pan Am flight one time, or excuse me, TWA years ago, and it was the rickiest 74-7 I had ever been on in my entire life. And I remember a month later, that same plane blew up and crashed because it had a fuel leak, a vapor leak. Um, at that point, the argument that the attendants were having as we were flying across the ocean over how outdated their uniforms were and how embarrassing it was seemed to not be really the most relevant problem that they were facing. Some of them may have found themselves in eternity very quickly. You see, the question is real simple. Is it airworthy or isn't it? It's not a question of what my definition of is is. It can't be both. It has to be one or the other. Rabbi Zechariah, in a debate with a university professor from America, had an interesting conversation because this American professor says, well, you have to understand that in America, everything we look at is either either or, but in the East, they view things as both and which Zacharias found interesting, having been raised a Brahmin in India and would be well familiar with Eastern philosophy, far more than this professor would have been. And his response was classic. He said, Professor, you have to understand that even in India, when we cross the street, we look both ways. Because if there's a bus, it's not going to be both and. It's going to be either, either me or the bus. That reality is going to crash into any theology that you might have. So that you can get away with that kind of verbal nonsense in a classroom. But when you're skydiving, either the chute opens or it doesn't. There's no middle ground. In fact, someone might say, well, what if it just partially opens? It's the same result as if it did not open at all. There is not an alternative reality. What's going to happen is you're going to have a crushing encounter with the real world in the most literal sense. What we need to understand, what is true about the material universe is also true about the moral and the spiritual universe. Because the God who made the material universe is the same one who made the moral and spiritual universe as well. So someone might say, okay, but what difference does it make? Let me tell you what Jesus, or how he answered that question. In Matthew 7, 24, he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, there's the operative action right there, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Essentially what Jesus is saying is foundations matter. Now, if you're a builder or even a homeowner, you understand that dynamic. Foundations matter a great deal. And what he's really saying to us is there is a rocky foundation. It's often a metaphor for Jesus himself. He is our rock, our fortress. 
our strong place of, of refuge. And he says, if you build your life on that unshakable foundation, you will weather the storms of life. That when suffering and sickness and sin come into your life, you will weather that storm no matter how horrific or difficult it is. But if you build it on a false foundation or a foundation of shifting sand, you will find that your life will crumble. The first time sufferings, bad times come into your life. The first time sickness, bad health comes into your life. The first time sin, bad choices come into your life. You'll just fold like a cheap deck of cards. And the question becomes then, what is your life built upon? Is it built upon the universal, absolute, unchanging facts of God and His Son, Jesus Christ? Or is it built upon some fictionalized idea of the way that you would like for the world to be? Jesus asked that question in Mark Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 6, he said, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the thing that you think is enlightenment is actually not enlightenment at all, it's actually a, a darkened view of the world, how great your life or how dark your life will become. And I say this simply because it's not just an issue for the non-Christian. It's a problem increasingly with the Christian community. Christians who have built their life not upon the biblical foundation, but rather have built it partly in Christ and partly in the world. They've given their life to Jesus, but they really operate using the operating manual of the world. And they wonder, why isn't it working the way it's supposed to work? My wife always has this, this kind of concern for me, that when something doesn't work, I start playing with it to figure out why it won't work. Twisting, turning, taking things apart, messing with it. And as she reminded me again just last night, I always think it's best if you begin by looking at the manual. You know, and I think to myself, why bother? I'll eventually figure it out, and if I don't, I'll throw it away and buy a new one and not tell her. But the whole point is, God has presented us with a manual. He's given us a, a, a detailed outline and diagram and explanation of what life is about and how it can be lived most fulfillingly, and yet many Christians barely peruse the text have never committed themselves to saying, I'm going to be a student of this word and I'm going to know what it says because they're too busy focusing on things that they think are more important and more essential to their happiness and success. What I'm really talking about in the bigger context is that the conflicting and co contradictory paradigms that people operate from. What is a paradigm? Paradigm is your view of reality. It's the perch that you sit upon as you look at your life and decide what is the way I should live my life. And it's based always upon what you believe is not only true, but is what is most beneficial to you. And there's this fascinating 
philosophy out there today that says you just need to be true to yourself and whatever makes you happy and that's the path that you need to follow so that you might satisfy your own needs. And what you need to understand is that view of reality is diametric to a biblical reality. What the Bible, when James begins this book and says, count it all joy when you go through various trials and temptations, if you have that view of reality, you're going to say, that's 